name is Jonathan Fight. I'm going to introduce myself a little more in a second. <laughs> but uh, I hope today we spark a conversation. So let me just say that uh, I will feel personally failed if I don't have some questions at the end. So we've got folks in the front who always have questions. We stack them there on purpose. Um, but my, my hope is that some of what we're going to talk about today is going to get some people thinking about what if. Um, that, is, that is really my objective here. Um, and apologies slash not apologies uh, if you notice that the title of my slide and what is in the presentation, the uh, agenda, don't quite match. Um, besides the downside of having submitted those things many months in advance, right? You kind of hope that that's still going to be interesting when you get there. Um, there's a lot of conversation right now. Um, Literally in the last couple weeks, there was conversation last night at dinner around things like ChatGPT. Uh, show of hands if you've heard of ChatGPT. <laughs> Anyone know how it works, what it does, for those who don't? Okay. Uh, essentially, the concept of artificial intelligence. Uh, the question of, of big data sets and computers and all this really geeky stuff. Um, and, well, as I, I won't give away where I'm going to go in this presentation, but I thought it was a worthy question to ask. How this matters here. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about things like predictive anything in an industry that I have often said has a general allergy to good data, uh, what does that mean? And how does that impact what you do all day? And then when we take it down to the level of some of the most vulnerable members of the communities in which we operate. Uh, right, so the idea of sort of tying this focus on special populations, special health needs, special needs more generally, social determinants of health, and show of hands if you've heard these buzzwords thrown around. But not with a whole lot of definition of what they mean, or how, we, how they, they play into the everyday practice, how they play into um, tracking somebody's lifetime uh, from, you know, from the earliest days at which issues get presented. Uh, particularly if these are, for example, I, well, I should say, I have Tourette syndrome, I'm a twitchy guy. If I seem so, don't adjust your monitor, it's me, not you. Uh, what does that mean? Right? It, it, it's something that I talk about, not because it's not literally on my face, but because it, and, and sleeping not that much during a conference tends to make things come out even more. Um, but it becomes relevant when, when you engage with a patient and you don't necessarily know their context. Right? And so, especially if you're showing up for the first time that you see somebody, we, we'll, we'll get featured in a minute. Um, but to the degree that context matters, right, the, the, the story behind this person's experience matters. And so if you're going to start talking about using information to try to affect how you care for people and who else you convey that information to, all of that matters. And when we talk about things like, like artificial intelligence or other systems making decisions for you, what do they have access to? And what do you have access to to even know whether what they are doing is correct? <laughs> and that was a, a fascinating discussion just last night at dinner uh, around, I didn't do it, <laughs> um, around the idea of iterating on artificial intelligence, trying to make itself smarter over time. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating concept at a geeky level, right? But if you don't even know the, the, the details of someone's life and experience and, and health history, when you show up to take care of them, right? we were just talking about outside about access to health information exchange. Right? 
If you in the field don't have access to somebody's context, how do you know that what you're about to do with all your heart and soul to make them better isn't going to make them worse? That's a real heavy question. And as we start talking about offloading intelligence to systems, I thought it seemed worthy to talk about how that, how that plays into, uh, again, the most vulnerable, mem vulnerable members <laughs> of the communities in which we operate. <laughs> So that said, uh, my name is Jonathan Fight. I run a company called Beyond Lucid Technologies. Uh, I am generally the biggest geek in the room, although in this room I may have some competition. Just looking among the sea of bodies here. <laughs> that on the right is my, my business partner, Chris. I will neither confirm nor deny that I had a moon man head on my head. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that really a couple years ago when we started this firm was an Achilles heel is that I am neither medic nor firefighter. I am not a clinician. I stay at a Holiday Inn Express every so often. Um, I, I joined the military a number of years ago on September 11th, uh, 2001 and was planning on becoming a medic. Turns out Tourette's Syndrome in the United States Army don't see eye to eye. Uh, so I did not proceed down that path, but I wanted another way to serve. And, that's how I ended up. It's a very short version of a long story that got me here. <laughs> but it really all sort of boiled down to the question of, do you know your patient? And can you know your patient? Um, how do you convey your knowledge about your patient? Someone asked me just yesterday how I got into this crazy, uh, always straightforward, never confusing, uh, non-regulated profession. Um, and the, one of the critical statistics that got us into this that remains the case now uh, as it was 14, good Lord, years ago, um, was about 50% of critical information lost at each note of handoff in a pre-hospital environment. And that's before you get into conversations of longitudinal care. That's just the right now. Show of hands if you're a flight medic. Okay, we got a few, right? I think we were talking about this last night. Right? Again, no pressure, like people who actually know me are in the room now, good Lord. Uh, so, if you are receiving a patient by air, how many times are you the first on scene? Right? Probably somebody was there that called you to that scene, right? So if you figure, let's say you're the third handoff in a process, maybe you've got a bystander, someone calls 911, ground crew shows up, maybe two ground crews, depending on if you're in California, maybe you've got a few, um, show up take custody of the patient, do something, hand them off to a, to a transport team that then takes you to an LZ, and then you get transported by air to another facility, and that's four, five nodes. If at each point in that process, 50% of what information was captured is lost, that's not even game of telephone, that's just may as well not even talk to anybody anymore. That's a real problem when the information about why you're taking care of this person and what matters and the scenarios that brought them into your care were all, sort of lost along the way, right? But they matter. And so that, that's what got me focused on this, was the idea that if I can start to close these gaps, it becomes a really interesting conversation on how that's going to affect what the clinicians do. And even today, we have paper handoff. Again, show of hands if you have a paper handoff process to your care facility today. So, and I know there's more of you. I mean, 100% know that there's more, right? Uh, in fact, I'd love this. Show of, raise your hands right quick. No, everybody raise your hand. All right, it's nine o'clock. Make sure everybody's awake. Okay, <laughs> leave your hand up if you have access to your state's health information exchange. 
Okay, so everyone look around the room. So we've got about, and now, now raise your hand up if that system connects to the documentation systems that you use in the field. So we've got, got about four in, in, a, in a room of folks who are self-selecting for focus on patients with special health needs. Right? This is tragic in 2023. Right? So to the degree that we can tie this into how you get paid for your work, then maybe I'll have done a service because at the end of the day, one of the big challenges that we find comes out of a gathering around folks in the, folk within, in the interest area of community paramedicine, mobile integrated health is how do you get paid for your work? Right? That's still a big open question for a lot of folks. I would submit that not only should you be getting paid for your work in CP, you should be getting paid more for the work in CP. You should be charging a premium for the work that you're doing in CP. We'll come back to that and how you get to those numbers and how you measure that and the evidence that you use. But you're stymied by the inability to access things and by people's inability to access what you do. And so if we're gonna talk about that, then how are we gonna talk about, again, evidence for the work that you've done, the impact that it's had, when, when we know that at every node in the process, half the information is getting lost. And the systems that already exist, that your tax dollars and mine pay for to move information around, but they don't receive data from you, and they don't do it for very real reasons. It's not because people don't like you, and it's not because EMS doesn't matter, and it's not because of the bastard redhead stepchild of the healthcare system. All that's nonsense excuses. For There are very real reasons for non-interoperability, and that means they can be fixed. And in many places, they are being fixed, including Ruben in Colorado, right? and James in Colorado. Colorado is a poster child for what this should look like and how information can flow in multiple directions and be used. So if Colorado can do it, why isn't everybody doing it? And I think that, and obviously John, you're there too, and I sort of associate you with all kinds of different places. So two takeaways, and I hope I have time to get to number two. I'm gonna flash it on the screen now, and I'm gonna flash it at the end, and I hope this is something that has everybody come in and ask you what we're talking about. Um, first and foremost, I wanna emphasize the idea that if you can solve interoperability and provide evidence for what you're doing and use computer systems to move information around to and from your services. You can get your CP programs paid for forever and people will be happy to throw money at you and they say please do more of it. Right? So the idea that these programs can't be paid for and by the way I will have you assume that you won't get one dollar of grant money nor should you need it. You shouldn't need one dollar of public money. There is so much value created by the work that you do that other people don't even recognize yet. That, that need, if, if you can solve the interoperability problem, you can get money thrown at you. This should be point number one, two, and three for if you're gonna build a program, make sure it touches the rest of the ecosystem. And when people see the evidence that you are, of the impact you are creating and how it gets measured and takes things like risk and cost off other people's books, that you should be paid for that hand over fist, but you need to be able to prove it. And that's a challenge, and that's what we're gonna talk about. The second part is something that doesn't get talk talked about enough, right? so we're gonna to touch on it a little bit, uh, which is that your documentation systems, again, for, I'm just gonna assume that nobody got into this business because they really like paperwork. Fair point? There's always an exception in the room. There's always someone who likes to read the manual. Yeah. There's always one. There you go. <laughs> so to the, to the degree that the information captured in the documentation systems that everybody despises, and I run a company that makes one, 
So I can say this as the, someone who often gets the arrows slung at him. Right? We, we know that feels like. Um, that information can save your life. And that often feels, feels odd and quizzical, right? The idea that this is not just a bullshit documentation system that gets associated with legal issues and billing, none of which you on the ground care about on a daily basis, other than you want to not go to jail and you want to continue to get paid. Those are good. But what if it turns out that contained within the PCR systems that everybody hates is a detailed record of all the shit that you have seen on a daily basis? And so rather than talking about the concept of removing stigma and making it comfortable for people to show up and say, I just saw a kid who died in a bathtub and that screwed with me because I have a four-year-old. That sucks, right? We hate those calls. We hate the fact that we were talking, my colleague Art was here a few minutes ago, was talking today about autistic kid who drowns in a bathtub. That sucks, right? The, the, how about the 35-year-old, nine-year-old, who gets lost on the subway, on the L, I just got chill, or this is actually a real story. So 35-year-old, nine-year-old, who got lost on the L in Chicago because of the stop that he's been trained to get off at by his parents is closed for maintenance. And so he gets out at the next stop. He doesn't know where to go. He's a nine-year-old in the body of a 35-year-old. And he starts going up to people and asking for help to get home. And people think that he's trying to accost them or whatever. Someone calls 911. He can't, he can't listen. He's a freaked out little kid with a mustache. Right? This is scary because all it takes is one bullet in his head and, and, and we've got a problem, right? And that happened in my town in California, right? So this is not theoretical at all. You guys see that. Your documentation systems capture that. Systems should be flagging that information to people, not relying on you to step up and say, I'm having trouble. They should be saying, if you don't have trouble after the last couple calls that you've gone on, something's wrong with you. And we actually need to get you into help immediately because you're probably suppressing it and that's even worse, right? So these documentation systems that contain all this data have a very important role to play. So I wanna start with my premise here that I'm talking about not just kids, but kids and youth with special health needs have a, a, a very special place in our, uh, in our society. And the numbers are massive. I was surprised, and I work in this space, and I was surprised to hear that 20% of kids, and obviously that means some, some percentage of adults, will have something classified under our federal structures as a special health need. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that go into that, but that's a lot of kids. <laughs> and if medicine does its thing, some of those kids are gonna grow up. Some of those things are gonna persist. <laughs> right? When you show up to take care of a patient in distress, how much of this information do you have access to today? That's a problem. Right? We all know the answer to the question, so I realize it's kind of a rhetorical question. And I wish that somebody would say, actually, we totally have access to it. That'd be a wonderful thing, and I'd love to hear about it. But in the vast majority of these United States, and even less in the rest of the world, this information doesn't exist to folks in the field. The rest of the world bit's important because there's a lot of noise right now about how things like community paramedicine work in Britain and Canada and Australia. And let me tell you, this is worse in other parts of the world, not better. These systems are non-existent in the, most of the rest of the world, not better. Nationalized health systems make this extremely difficult in many cases to get at for both technical and legal reasons and operational reasons. And they're having just as much of a staffing crisis as we are. <laughs> so there's less time on task and longer wait times to get seen by other clinicians, not better. 
it seems like it's nice and easy because it's a single data set. That actually can be disastrous when it comes to making sure you have data quality. So we need to disavow ourselves with that idea. But the problem is huge. And as I was putting this presentation together, I realized we have a fundamental question that doesn't get addressed in this discussion of special health needs, which is what does it mean to be special? And for the record, I'm not even on right? This isn't about E for effort. Right? It's not about a participation trophy. I actually get really annoyed because my seven-year-old son, who I'm teaching to try really hard, just got a medal given to him. He had a perfect, they had, their team had a perfect score in basketball. It was here. But they got a medal, I guess, and it's hard to lose every game that you play. It's a trauma for another time. <laughs> okay, so, so what does it mean to be special? Right? If we're going to talk about engaging with these patients and using systems of information to inform care, what is, that, what is it even looking for? What are we looking for? How do we have that conversation when these are somewhat undefined? <laughs> So I kind of want to walk through, rather quickly here, a couple cases I put together that I think, I hope, give us some things to ask ourselves of what if. Right? That's my win for today. If you walk out of here and you say, huh, why aren't we doing that? That's a win for me. <laughs> right? So everybody get to leave here and ask yourself what if, and I'll, I'll get an E for effort and rock and roll. <laughs> okay, so let's assume you show up, 911, scene of a crash. How much information would you say you have about the folks who are, well, about the crash itself, for one? There are places that are working on systems like Next Generation 911 that'll provide imagery from the scene and so on and so forth. Two weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. at an advocacy event with the National Emergency Number Association. Show of hands if you've heard of NINA. Two. Okay, so these, this is an association of dispatchers. Folks who are working on next generation 911 and interoperability imagery from the scene. And you just highlighted the tragedy that I pointed out to them, which is none of, nobody's talking to each other. Right? So the fact that there are, there are literally hundreds of millions, billions of dollars going into next generation 911, the sponsors of this event were Comcast and AT&T, I mean massive internet multinational corporations, right? And the idea that the information that's presented theoretically to dispatch doesn't convey past the HIPAA line was unbeknownst to well over 90% of people in the room. <laughs> and when they went to Congress and met with folks at Congress, they had no idea that that information can't convey down the line. So they're taking all, putting all this work and capturing imagery from the scene of a crash, not realizing that you roll up on scene and you can't see any of that. And if you did, you shouldn't be looking at it because it's on an MDT and you're supposed to be driving. Right, etc. So you show up on scene. Turns out mom's got a problem. Dad's got a problem. Brother's got a problem. Sister's got a problem. I mean, their health care insurance is challenging. Uh, how much of this information do you have? What do you do? What do you do first? Who do you take care of first? Right? Uh, and especially when you consider this bottom one, right? Because that's invisible. Actually, several of these are invisible. But diabetes, maybe someone can convey to you. We'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe that person's wearing a bracelet. If you're like my dad, who's a diabetic and refuses to wear a bracelet, here's hoping there's somebody there to tell you, right? But the bottom one, you may not even know that you have an injury until significantly later, right? Again, I'm not a clinician, 
So add all of, the, all of your clinical knowledge of what could happen onto that scenario and ask oneself, is that one that you'd want to know and what would it do if you did? Sorry for some formatting here. Let's try another one. So we talk about community paramedicine. We're talking about social determinants of health. So let's assume for a minute you've got a patient with a substance use disorder. This again, not an unrealistic scenario and it's actually one from a project I worked on. <laughs> well, let's assume that that patient is gonna meet with say a CP or someone else in their community or in their ecosystem of care this afternoon. Remember, they're staying in a halfway house, right? Because they're trying to get their life back on track and it's important that they don't miss curfew. Right? Because if they miss curfew, they might not be able to come then and have housing that night. <laughs> the problem is, when they were earlier in the day for reasons that may have nothing to do with the substance use issue, uh, let's say they live in San Francisco and we lose our minds regularly. <laughs> um, I can say that I live right outside of it. I go in, I get the food, I leave. Uh, so uh, something happens, right? Someone calls 911. Everybody knows that if you are in a protected 911 environment, your information can't just float out there anymore, right? So if someone's transported to the hospital, how is somebody gonna know? Maybe that person gets out of the hospital 11 o'clock that night, maybe they're fine. Maybe they get out the next morning. Maybe there's someone who wants to make sure that they're okay. And they are or they aren't. But how does anybody know? Right? How do you convey that information to the halfway house? Wouldn't it be wonderful if they had the ability to be notified of that? Because if not, the effects of not notifying them can be worse. Right? They get out, they're fine, they've got a cast on their arm, whatever it is, and now, they, now they're on the street. And now that substance use, that substance that seemed something they wanted to get away from, that's what's going to get them through the night. Right? Any of you guys seen Dope Sick yet on Hulu? You should walk, yeah? It is, isn't it compelling? I mean, it's the most compelling descent into the awfulness that is substance use disorder, how no one wants to be there. And they keep getting dragged back into the world. Um, and it's the most tra it was just the most tragic thing to watch. Um, and we know this happens every day. But in this scenario, could we have avoided that information through some <laughs> interoperability? Here's another one. So patient is at home, elderly patient, not an elderly patient, maybe they've got COPD due to whatever, maybe they've got lung cancer, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Someone's gonna go check on them. You guys are gonna do what CPs do. This is good work, right? You're gonna go check on them. <laughs> and you got that appointment later this afternoon. Um, it's based on a scenario that happened to one of my partners in Texas, uh, where someone was actually on medications uh, they were supposed to take twice a day. This was blood pressure medications. Uh, completely unrelated, maybe some, you know, tangentially related to what they were doing. So her doctor told her to take it twice a day. They didn't take, tell her to take them separately. So she took the medications twice a day, and then she fell backwards down the stairs, <laughs> right? So now we've got a problem. Now that patient ends up in a 911 environment. You're supposed to see her 30 minutes later. How do you even find out? Does anybody, if, whether or not the 911 service may even be your own colleagues in the same department, how do you get that information? How, how do the folks who are going to see her at whatever hospital she's going to get to, do they know why you were going to see her? But isn't that relevant? Because they know she fell down and had a head trauma or whatever happened. They don't necessarily know that she's on these medications. There's a hot transport to a nearby facility. What's the context on this patient? Right? All of these are real. Right? Any of these sound unrealistic? These all sound like patients you've probably seen at some point or another and we'll see again. Right? 
And so it underscored for me, again, this question of what does it mean to be special? <laughs> I know it's funny. I, at one point, I had a slide on here that literally just said special, good, question mark. <laughs> I'm not sure it is. <laughs> I think the, the one that I find most compelling on here is unusual. <laughs> but the ir irony is you're not necessarily even that unusual, right? It might be unusual to everyone outside of this room. But we know that if you're in this room and the patients are calling you one way or another, they're self-selecting for they've got stuff going on, right? And I, I always find it troubling. We, we talk about the, the number of people who misuse uh, ambulance services, misuse mobile medicine in general, the fraud numbers and things like that. But I, I don't know a whole lot of people who really enjoy getting back in the truck. Someone may need a ride. I get that. But that probably underscores some underlying issue that they kind of wish they had a ride. Right? There, there's room for a lot of empathy in this space. That's why I work with, you know, with, I love the work that I get to do with folks like you all. You guys are the nice people. I'm the money grubber who gets you paid. Uh, but, but it really begs this question of, of, again, special, unusual, complex. What would we do differently if we had that information? Would they still be complex? Or would it simply be contextualized? Right? And if you had that information but, and you were able to get in front of a crisis, <laughs> what could we do differently? And I said, my goal is to get you paid. I don't touch the patient. Uh, I have touched the patient. Um, I have a, a, a couple now instances of compelling empathy, including both child on bottom of pool and daughter with half a grape stuck in her throat. Uh, the idea that you guys do this all day, every day, I'm not entirely sure how you sleep at night. Um, and I know that a lot of people don't, and we need to talk about that, right? But to the degree that every step of this process, every step of those case studies we just talked about generates value to someone. And so if we follow the money, can we get you the resources that you need to not only take care of them and the communities in which folks live, but also yourselves? The question is, are you making that case? And are you making that case to the people who need to know? And I would argue you're not, because this industry talks to itself, <laughs> right? Bless you. Because folks get together and they get online and they vomit things like red-headed bastard stepchild of the healthcare system, which is such garbage that I, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to offend anybody who actually thinks that that's what mobile medicine is, because that's a horrible way of manifesting what is basically a inferiority complex <laughs> that an entire profession has internalized. Uh, the work that you do is essential, you know this. The work that you do is universal, which I think is actually really interesting. I've only found in all of my business studies two other industries that I find are equally ubiquitous, at least in the United States, to mobile medicine. Anyone want to guess? Gas stations and utilities. <laughs> That's it. I've been looking, believe me, I would like to find others. I'm sure there are some, but there are towns that have no restaurants yet have a fire or EMS service, right? I'm putting police under that as well because they sort of function in this capacity, especially in rural environments, right? First on scene of a medical emergency is often a cop, right? So let's put them in that bucket. But we have gas stations everywhere, except when I'm driving through Texas, totally other story. <laughs> um, and we have utilities pretty much everywhere, which are right keep the lights on. The fact is, we are animals. Humans break, right? Things happen, and someone shows up. So 
recognizing, for example, that mobile medicine tends to be a fairly conservative bunch. Raise your hand if you enjoy the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> Raise your hand if you don't. <laughs> Raise your hand if you knew that EMS is actually the reason the Affordable Care Act exists in the United States. One, awesome. So it, turn, it turns out, without going down a cul-de-sac of despair, that, that in the deliberations around what has now been called Obamacare and so on and so forth, there's all this discussion of whether it's a tax, whether it's a fee, whether it's this and that and the other. And the Chief Justice of the United States said, in this country, and there's a bit of a paraphrase, but not far off, you can eat what you want, sleep with who you want, smoke what you want, do all the things that you want to do. You can, you can blow things up in yourself. And when you wrap your car around a tree, someone will show up to take care of you, and they deserve to get paid for their work. And that's in the transcript, not quite that way, but pretty close, in the transcript of what allowed the Affordable Care Act to be seen as a universal policy, because you just never know when it's gonna hit the fan, and someone shows up. We break, we die, we get sick, we go crazy. You guys show up. Each of these participants and others have a stake in that outcome. Why aren't they paying you for your work? And my argument would be, because you're not telling them about your work. So therein lay the question, right? So why aren't we? <laughs> now, um, I would argue that part of the problem is that this becomes a commercial conversation. This becomes a conversation about money. Speaking of which, um, Two for the Money is not a great movie. I will, I will not say it was Al Pacino's finest work. <laughs> However, this is a really compelling case, a really compelling statement. I think it might be the great line from the whole two hours of the movie. Um, just because you make the case doesn't mean somebody's going to give it to you. <laughs> Again, in an industry that doesn't even like to advocate for its own value, that believes it's the redheaded stepchild and bastard healthcare system, you know, cousin, whatever. How much emphasis has anyone placed, and I'm gonna call out April here, because she's remarkable and present, and you run a healthcare system, <laughs> right? We need more convergence in the room. <laughs> Right? How many people take the time to understand what you do all day? And how many times have you sat down with your healthcare partners and explained what you do all day? And it doesn't happen nearly enough. In North Carolina, a couple years ago, I worked with a program that was trying to get a CP effort off the ground. This was a countywide EMS system that spent two years talking past its local hospital, which is a very large maybe a division of Atrium Health. Um, sorry, is that a, I'm thing in my throat. Um, two years, not because they didn't want to work together, because no one had ever just defined that things like reimbursement meant different things to different people. And so they'd send emails to each other and they'd get lost in this translation because nobody got together and said, anyone got a whiteboard nearby, right? And I did, and I actually brought a partner in who specialized in federally qualified health systems, which was some of what they had in this county. And I came in representing the folks with the light bars and the sirens and all that. And I said, let's hash this out. And in one afternoon, we solved two years worth of roadblock. I didn't need to do that. My colleague didn't need to do that. They needed to get together and do that. And they hadn't done it in two years. Think about how many people could have been helped in that two year period. And this shit becomes pretty real. Okay. So going back to what special means, again, I think this is going to be a problem, right? And we're going to, we'll talk about, I'm going to jump ahead in the interest of time a little bit, but 
the forever part, that one's a problem, right? People die. It's sad. We'll talk about that. But, but clearly being special could mean that someone, someone cares about you, whether professionally or personally. <laughs> but, you know, they found the Geico money. Um, so to, to the degree that we need to be able to underscore what that means and how you get it, comes back to the world that I live in every day and that hopefully you guys will start to think about when, it, when those validation rules in your charting system are a pain in the ass. And when we advocate that Nemesis is outdated, it's not, it's essential. I'd like to talk about that during Q&A hopefully. If anybody ever decides that they want to talk about how we need a different data system or we need to play in HL7 or we need to not use Nemesis, let me kibosh that right now. Because that's like the biggest, again, cul-de-sac of despair. That is a bad direction to go. The more orphan the data, the worse your CP program will perform. You need to align your systems more with your neighbors, not less. We need to understand when the hospital says you can't have access to our system, or when, God help you, they say take our Epic system and put it in the field, you are asking for a world of hurt. And it's not because of the documentation system. That's its own pain in the ass. That can be dealt with. The problem is behind the scenes, you won't be able to compare with anybody else. See? Beat you to it. <laughs> um, so, so to the degree that if someone says, how well did you do? So perform what you did, and if you prove what you did rather, and if you do, I will give you all the money. I will prove, you, you show me how you made this person better. You show me how your hands on this patient over and over again made that person better. And I will give you all the money. You will never have to ask me for a dime. And how many services could actually step up and do that? That's a real problem. And the answer is not a lot, by the way, lest you're wondering. Most of the, I, I would, with the exception of maybe Reba, who worked in finance, right? <laughs> to the degree that if you don't understand what things like actuarial risk are, you can't make this case. I will hopefully get you there, and we will talk about that. But show of hands, anyone know what actuarial risk is? I was like, you better raise your hand. I know you know this one. <laughs> Anyone else know what actual risk is? No, we call, most people call it insurance, right? But no one thinks about it in terms of insurance. You have to be able to measure it. We have to understand what the numbers are. We have to be able to geek out on this stuff. And it turns out there's some <laughs> pretty good systems to get us there, <laughs> right? So again, if we're going to talk about wanting to go and engage with the blues, right? Blue Cross, Blue Shield, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to talk about Cigna. We're going to talk about United Health. We're going to talk about all these different organizations. It's important to be able to say that this matters on a human level. That's not what gets you paid. That gets you a pat on the back and maybe an award, right? Gets you a couple minutes on, on the news and you buy the ice cream, apparently. That's what I hear how it works. <laughs> right? but, but that doesn't get you paid. What gets you paid is, is evidence. <laughs> so you want to talk to those guys, talk to them. But if you don't speak the same language, you're going to spend two years to figure out that you're not saying the same words. By the way, one, another takeaway that I hope you take, have from today's conversation. Um, how many of you have used the word reimbursement in the context of like, getting paid for your work ever in the history of ever? Okay, if you never use that again, that'll be a win. Let's, let's move to a new word called compensation. Reimbursement means paying you back for something that you used. Right? That's what it means in English. I don't care what it means at CMS. It means something in English. So to the degree that if you use a bag of saline and I pay you back for the saline, I've reimbursed you for the saline. 
I haven't paid you squat for the work that you did and the value generated by using the saline. So if you're looking to get reimbursed, knock yourselves out. That sounds like a totally realistic ask. You're just never going to advance, right? What we need to start talking about is getting compensated for good work. <laughs> That's a whole different thing. So now you've got to be able to prove <laughs> what it is that you did and why that matters to the person that you're asking to release the funds from their talons, right? <laughs> they will, they want to. Shareholder money needs to get spent. Shareholder money needs to get spent because otherwise it sits in a bank account, unless it's in Silicon Valley Bank, which is too soon, sorry. Whole <laughs> um, thing. So that money doesn't generate return by sitting and doing nothing. It generates its return by creating value in excess of cost. This is not a clinical thing. This is just literally a math calculation, right? Because profit equals revenue minus expense. <laughs> so I can't generate the profits that go into my stock price if I'm not using the money to do something that generates return in excess of cost. That's it. That's the entire calculation, right? So I have to be able to use that. I want to spend the money. I want to invest it in my community. I don't know to give it to you because you're not bringing anything to me that says you're going to be the right place to put this. That's nonsensical in every way. Like the general return that everyone in this room and the folks who aren't in this room generate on a daily basis is not incalculable. It's being calculated wrongly. And I don't have his stuff specifically in here, but I will suggest that you all look up Eric Saylors, spelled S-A-Y-L-O-R-S. -S. <laughs> he is now the chief of the El Cerrito Kensington Fire Department in California. He was previously at Sacramento Fire, and he's brilliant. And his work focuses on tracking the value of emergency services over their actual impact. All right, so specifically focused on fire, but the same model can be applied to EMS and community paramedicine, for example, which is if all you've done is save a building, eh, maybe save a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of impact. But if you save the jobs that are in the building because people get to go back to work, you get to send those kids to school. One of those kids cures cancer. What's the value that your arrival on scene to put out a fire actually created? Could be billions over years and lives saved and generations, right? And so are you valuing your information <laughs> incorrectly? Are you trying to make cases for other people that don't underscore what it is you're doing? How many people in this room have talked about readmission avoidance as a focus on their program? Let's never do that again. So it turns out it's actually something of an impossible calculation. And it's not a bad thing to want to do, it just doesn't work. But the why is important. And so I would submit to you, as a non-clinician, as a guy who swims around in numbers and money all day apparently, not physical money, I wish I did, that would be fun. Remember Scrooge McDuck? I mean, God, what a great idea to swim around in coins. Um, so, it is not impossible to create, to be so effective at keeping people out of a hospital's emergency department that your program gets shut down. That is possible. That happened in the Phoenix Valley of Arizona. I won't tell you which programs. There were several of them. And they were so good at taking care of patients in their homes that the behemoth of a hospital that was now losing out on all of this money of those patients who were coming in shut, got the program shut down. Because for all the discussion about the readmission penalty, 
in this profession, articles after articles for years are built on an error. And that error is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the penalty is. Here it is. The readmission penalty is not a fine. It's a discount. Okay? That changes everything. It's not negative revenue. It's a reduction in revenue. So, and, and it caps out, at least in the initial framework, at 3%. So if someone, if someone asked you, would you bring the patient to me for 97 cents instead of a dollar, and I will pay you the 97 cents, right? Are my numbers off? 3% cap, right? right? So if someone said 97 cents or zero to stay at home, would you rather take the 97 cents? Damn right, except during COVID. And the reason during COVID is because places where I were so busy until they weren't. And so they were in Silicon Valley and in the digital health world that I work in half my time. This caused carnage among companies because they were built around this stupidity of keep the patient out of the hospital because someone's going to benefit from that. Well, it turns out they do as long as you have a more expensive patient behind them, right? So if you are, keep, if you are messing with the actuarial model and you're messing with the payer mix and the patient mix and you've got enough patients to fill those beds, absolutely keep the low revenue ones that you could feed at home at home. They don't really want the cafeteria food in the, in the hospital anyway. I remember finding it funny. The first time I went to Cedar sinai Medical Center cafeteria in California, world-renowned for cardiac care, and their fried chicken is off the charts. Like, I mean, that is smart marketing right there. <laughs> so, so, so to the degree that if you don't have patients coming in behind because of remote patient monitoring, right? Because Best Buy out there is selling wireless devices that allow you to stay at home. Because medically home is growing with gobs of dollars and all these different, uh, uh, again, remote patient monitoring, hospitals, home, etc. There aren't enough patients anymore. Hospitals definitely need patients now, right? And so in COVID, it went up and it crashed, right? And we know that that's caused all kinds of problems. But if this model is still what we're working on, it's not, a, it's not surprising to me, at least, that people don't want to pay for it. It's actually causing problems. It's not making things better. It might be making better for your patient, and it might be making your community healthier, but that's not the metric. <laughs> you gotta speak the language that they care about. <laughs> and so we're gonna talk about what that language is. Now again, this problem is not unsolvable. They're just unsolvable at the same time. But in business school, we call this an optimization. I actually hated the optimization class, and now I'm doomed to do this work every day. So, you know, such is life. <laughs> okay. At the end of the day, getting patients to the right place requires resources, right? Those resources are not small. So here's a bit of a trick, non-trick question after I talked too much to get here. But which patient would you rather? Which patient is better? Anyone? What? Anyone? Show of hands? Which one? Good question. <laughs> but which patient... How about? It depends how much time does it take and how much resources does it take to get the money. If I get 13.58 for an hour of personnel time and minimal supply expenditure, but 24.21 is going to take five hours of personnel time, then I'll take 5 over 13.58 instead. 
Fair enough. So this is about cost, not about revenue, right? So, so but I, I hear your point, and I think that's important. So to the healthcare system, including the revenue that you capture, if a patient costs $1,358 or a patient costs $2,400, which one is better for the healthcare system? Which one is a healthier patient, for example? Let's do that. Which one of these is healthier? Probably $1,358. Anyone else? Okay, so hope, hopefully you're a little surprised to find that the 1358 is going to drink themselves to death on their couch. Okay, so who is the most effective, cost-effective patient you will ever take care of? James, not allowed to answer. Who is the most cost-effective patient you will ever take care of? Answer, a dead one. Okay. People don't cost a lot when they're not going to healthcare. People start to cost a ton when they use it, right? So to the degree that the 1358 represents the cost of someone who hasn't gotten better, it's probably the last days that they're going to have, right? They're going to waste away if you get them better. So this is the study from a while ago. I'll be happy to send this out with the citations. It's a little blurry down there, right? But if it turns out that the 1358 is for someone who is currently drinking, the 2400 is the person who's not anymore. And I can do this all day. Okay? Because it turns out they're deferring care. Now, by the time they come to you, you're going to get them better. And you're not charging what you should be charging. The rest of the healthcare system most certainly is. Right? So those costs start to get injected, which is why you cannot optimize for better health, better utilization of the healthcare system, and the cost associated with that if, it's, if the goal is to reduce it at the same time. Because utilization of the service costs money, right? And it turns out you'll get there, but not in 30 days. And that's where the readmission penalty error comes in. <laughs> if the goal is to get them better, and the goal is to get them, uh, to get their cost of utilization down and to give them access to healthcare system and keep them from wasting away, which becomes both tragic and expensive, and we open up the timeline, we can achieve that objective. But if you promise your healthcare system you're gonna do it in 30 days, <laughs> you're gonna have a problem. <laughs> so I know that was a little bit callous, but I figure everyone in here has got a black, black sense of humor anyway, so <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just lean into it, right? <laughs> If you want to reduce all the costs, let them keep doing what they're doing. <laughs> this one's not funny. I put this in here to make sure I had time to cover it. <laughs> but this one turns out to be one of the most effective uses of money in the healthcare system that you could possibly have. And literally all it is is holding somebody's hand. <laughs> According to the London School of Economics a number of years ago, and these numbers are getting worse, uh, excuse me, the more compelling, not less compelling, holding somebody's hand and letting the grandparent tell you about the grandkids that never come visit is one of the most compelling returns on investment in the healthcare system. A 300% return. Whole companies are being built just to do that. Uh, and they are remarkable. <coughs> and I'm happy to talk about that at any point if you'd like. But it is a most remarkable niche. Just be there for somebody. Health tends to take care of itself. Because again, the people don't want to be in the alleyway with something hanging out of their arm. That's not fun when they wake up. Right? So to the degree that we can keep them from getting there because they've got somebody and they have a reason to live, turns out to be a remarkable expenditure, uh, uh, value for your expense. 
So tobacco, uh, and I'm using this as a bit of a heuristic for other substances as well that cause harm. Okay. Consider that somebody who's smoking, I have to make this preface by saying, I didn't really believe it when people told me you could blow up your uh, oxygen and like blow your eyebrows off until I saw it happen. A friend of mine who had lung cancer, uh, uh, lung cancer and a variety of other cancers, and would literally take the cannula out of his nose, take the oxygen tank with him onto the porch, smoke the cigarette, put it back in and go inside the house. But I, I, combustion's a thing. <laughs> so to the degree that this is, again, this is a takeaway that I hope will change the way your programs are structured. If you look at a 30-day spin, you will fail. With, with basically two exceptions. One is the loneliness. Anyone want to guess on the other one? Food insecurity. <laughs> Turns out if somebody's hungry and you feed them, they don't call you anymore. I mean, go figure, right? There's not a whole lot of work involved in getting somebody to eat. So if you do that, they don't call you because the problem's solved. Um, California, we do everything right, in case you haven't heard. Um, so. One of my first CP programs <laughs> created one of my most compelling examples that I ever get to talk about this was a woman who was visually impaired, homebound, um, variety of other challenges, and uh, low income. This was in the city of Alameda, uh, so just outside of San Francisco. And uh, when the CP team was, oh, and she had called, she was calling 911 like every couple hours. I mean, they were, we're talking mega users. So she was, she was in the system probably five or more times per week on an extended basis. Um, and so when the CP team got stood up, they went out and they spent more time and they interviewed her and they wanted to understand the needs and so on and so forth. Um, and what they found was she qualified for food stamps. So why, and, and one of the things she always complained about was how hungry she was, right? They tried to figure out why she was hungry if she qualified for food stamps. And it turns out because in California we don't do anything wrong, we do everything right all the time. Um, you need an ID to get your food stamps. But she was homebound and visually impaired. She couldn't drive. She couldn't get to the DMV to get the ID that would get her the food stamps that would have her not calling for help anymore. No one had ever asked her that. No one had ever understood why don't you have what you're entitled to. So the CP team took her in the little red Prius and they drove her to the DMV and sat with her. Um, pictures of this car, it's the goofiest it's thing, it's got a shield on the side, it's a red Prius. It's totally California, it's the worst thing ever. <laughs> so, uh, and, and they sat with her and they got, the DM, got her the food stamps um, and she called for help once in the following year. And it was for an actual, like she had fallen down and hurt her leg or something. Uh, that's compelling, right? But the aperture needed to be opened. <laughs> you had to understand, what is success? Right? So with the exception of food and loneliness, right, we can get you there, but you need enough time to get better. Right? <laughs> and so when it comes to taking this back to the money, there's two ways to get there. Right? One is to either make more money, which we should talk about. And I know I just sort of dropped this before, but um, I believe that, that community paramedicine, mobile integrated health programs should be charging more for their work. You should be getting paid hazard pay, okay? So imagine, again, Reba, I told you I was gonna say this yesterday, right? I think I mentioned to you, I was gonna say it again. So 
Consider, if you get called on a hot call for a patient inside their home who's a hoarder, who has a history of violence, who has a, who is schizophrenic, and there's rats in the house, and there's all these different hazards, do you just not show up? I mean, you roll, right? You go in, you deal with it. If you, are a, if you are someone whose job description is to check medication bottles, bed pans, or bed sores, etc., do you really want to be in a situation where you're get, you, know, you could end up having violence? Do you want to get stabbed? Do you want to get a communicable disease? That's a shitty situation, right? EMS goes in every day. Mobile medicine goes in every day, right? That, that's, un, unless there's an actual threat of violence where maybe a you know, police or, or some other uh, public safety is going in with you, you don't get to not go, right? But there are other organizations that are doing, that are being put in that situation, they don't want to. Wouldn't it be nifty if you could actually subcontract to a home health nursing system, right? And take risk off their books because they don't need to, they don't need to absorb that, that insurance expense anymore. Their insurance rates will go down if they get to take the risky ones and give them to you. You go anyway. So you've got all the gear. You've got the training. You know how to immobilize. You know how to give somebody a shot to calm them down. That happens, right? If you can do that for them, now we've solved this nonsensical EMS versus home health nursing quandary. They love you. They're going to pay you, right? So that's a good thing. We, we need to think about that. The other is to prove that you're worth the expense. And this is where it gets a little wonky, right? Because again, this profession has an allergy to good data. The, the validation rules at the end of the call tend to bother people. They shouldn't. They make sure it's not garbage. That's important when you're gonna try to measure it. And the use of standards like Nemesis allows you to compare to others to see how you perform. So that if there are 10 organizations all trying to get money out of the Blue Cross Blue Shield stone in your state, they know which ones are working well. And they know which ones need to work with each other to get better so that everybody gets the funds that they deserve and the boats rise. But if all you go in is with a bunch of sob stories, you're not going to speak this language. <laughs> so we need to go to understanding that you need to be able to measure your impact, reduce the actuarial risk. <laughs> Self-portrait. <laughs> and it turns out, again, we'll go back to the artificial intelligence conversation. I'm going to kind of speed through a couple of these now. But this was a definition that just came out as to what AI could be. Self-improving, and it either goes really well or it goes really, really badly. And it turns out that AI fits really, really naturally with what you do. For example, you take things that you learn and you synergize them with science, right? <laughs> because mobile medicine is medicine. After all, you augment that which you see with your own knowledge, right? Your experience, your ability to understand what's happening. You use that to decide to do something, you're hoping, and presumably, because this is how medical directors tend to work, um, they say, if this, then that, right? So they're basically human computers. <laughs> uh, and the idea that if I went into this person's home 10 times in the last two weeks and this happened, maybe the next time I go in, it's going to be that. Not always the case, and that's important, right? And your ability to use what you're seeing now to adjust what you're going to do, which is problematic for computers. But how have we been talking about using AI in this industry? And I thought you'd appreciate this one, because that just came up. <laughs> 
So if we're at the point where folks want to use AI to get through their narratives faster, we've got a problem. <laughs> By the way, not a bad use of AI per se, just definitely not where we should be stopping, <laughs> right? And so his beard isn't quite as luscious here as it is in the front row. <laughs> but John, <laughs> but John <laughs> made a point yesterday that I thought was really, really interesting. And I, even, even for all the work that I've spent around, time I've spent around medicine and uh, with diabetes in the family and so on, I didn't realize that you can cause somebody's brain to swell <laughs> by giving them insulin too fast or too much, et cetera, right? So wouldn't it be a remarkable thing if you had the ability to know, and this was just a, a very short way of saying what you said, if you knew that this child or this person had a chronic history of either diabetes that was way out of range or that this was not an uh, abnormality, et cetera, et cetera, wouldn't that change what you do? And so here's the tagline that tends to get people real riled when I say community prayer medicine is not a clinical program. It's a data program. You guys are the clinical program. You show up and take care of whatever happens anyway. The only question is, can you know them before you get there? So what information do you have access to? What information can you use? How is that going to impact the work that you do? And if you can prove what you've done, then money rains down on your head. If you can reduce things like medication noncompliance, if you can improve somebody's uh, ability to live and comfortably and less risky, someone <laughs> benefits from that. But you have to be able to prove what you are doing and also know what to do in order to not make things worse. <laughs> so in my last few minutes, I want to blow your mind a little bit by the sheer number of data systems that exist out there that you don't have access to and that you could and you can and in some cases you will, but you need to demand it. How many of you have ever worked, again, folks from Colorado don't count, how many of you have ever worked with your health information exchange in your community? And I mean really work with it, not that like, I can look it up in a portal and it doesn't connect to anything else I do but actually be able to say, I know what this person's special health needs are. I want to do a med reconciliation, right? I mean, you use a med reconciliation sheet, right? Write down all the meds and so on. But how do you know what they're supposed to be on? How do you know when they were prescribed what they were? Not that they have 10 pill bottles, but how many of those are correct? How many of them were taken, the meds were taken twice a day, but they got taken at the same time instead of separate times a day, right? Do they have an end of life medical order, right? The fact that I, I do a lot of work with pulsed end-of-life medical orders. And it is tragic to me that in 2023, we don't have the ability to say, don't pound my chest. Because once you're alive, I can't kill you again. Right? That's a real problem. Right? So if somebody has gone through the effort of making sure that they have gone, gone through and codified their wishes, and you're on scene and you don't know that, that's just tragedy on top of tragedy. Because if you're alive, that's actually worse, potentially, than if you were gone. And it's, a, and it's worse for their family who now sees you and sees them that way. Right? They're never going to forget that their parent or sibling or whoever passed with a tube down their throat. And they didn't want that. And no one wanted that. And that's not available to you in the field in states that have registries, but EMS doesn't access them. I'm thinking of New York now. <laughs> and this is horrible. And we're in 2023, and we're talking about like flying cars, and we can't make this happen? That's insane. Right? I had to learn how an LVAD works. If someone asked me if you could build a, a, a registry of left ventricular assist devices, because apparently people with LVADs are zombies. 
They have no heartbeat or something, right? So they're walking around perfectly content, and they have no heartbeat. <laughs> kind of important when they collapse and you think they're dead and they're not. How is that a thing? <laughs> right? We can, hold, uh, by the way, homeless information systems. Any of you ever heard of a homeless information system? <laughs> right, so HMIS are all over the United States, and extremely few EMS agencies use them. In California, nobody uses them. And, you know, we have, like, Facebook and stuff. <laughs> So I can look you up on Facebook easier than I can look you up in a homeless information system, if you're a homeless person. Because <laughs> it turns out there are organizations that will give you a cell phone. Right? Cell phone is considered a utility for life-saving purposes now in many jurisdictions. You can get a cell phone. <laughs> Best Buy actually bought a company that does stuff like that. Uh, but the fact that you are in these registries is not necessarily known to you or accessible to you. And obviously, again, health information exchange, social determinants of health, <laughs> all of the rare diseases. Right? What if you were somebody whose life depends on your ability to know that this child has no connective tissue? Marfan syndrome. We have one of those in our community. There's a child who is alive because her par his parents went to the local fire department and let them know that he lives there. In 2023, they walked their ass into the actual, into the actual station to tell the department that their child has Marfan syndrome and he lives a couple blocks from the station. He's in every database that there could possibly be. And she had, they had to walk into the department to let them know that's insane. <laughs> so this became the question that made me change my presentation yet again yesterday. So sorry for talking so long, but your fault. <laughs> so what would you do differently if you had access to information? What would you do differently? I didn't even know these, and I work in the data space that 20% of car crashes have been attributed by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to diabetes. 35 of them to a seizure disorder. It turns out globally there's 36 and a half million epileptics driving. Wouldn't that be useful to know <laughs> when you show up on scene and you're, you're responding to a hot call from a Tesla that called for 911 but you show up and you have no idea why it called? In 2023? That's crazy. <laughs> right? So what if it turns out we can fuck fix this problem? But you have to demand it, right? You have to call your health information exchange, not me, right? You have to be able to say, I want to give you data. I will give you the data. I will conform my systems to what you need. And here's what I'm gonna need back and here's why. And it's not just because it's good. Forget good, forget right. Call it cost effective, because <laughs> this is really expensive. You know who cares about this? Car companies, insurance companies. Think they don't have money? They have gobs of money. Tell them that you'll be able to show up. Tell the workers' comp company that you'll be able to show up and get each of these people represented in these numbers back to work faster because you showed up and knew that this person had a condition. So you got them to the one facility and not the other. Talked about it yesterday, right? You took them to the trauma center, not the other. You took them to the cardiac center or the stroke center because you had some idea that this person has a history of stroke. Right? Maybe this person's had one before. If you knew that, you'd take them to a comprehensive neurological center instead of someplace else. Right? Or right, comprehensive, right? <laughs> no, not primary. Right? Anyway, so, sorry. So, to the degree that if, if you knew what to do, you would do something differently, and someone benefits from that. <laughs> and there's more money out there to do this than will, I mean, it'll make your head spin. You're just talking to the wrong people and you're not talking to people in a language that they care about. <laughs> what if you had the ability to impact mothers and kids 
make health information exchanges more uh, effective and informed, <laughs> improve road safety, improve social equity, because again, the mental health patient with autism or another under or, or whatever, schizophrenia, et cetera, doesn't get shot in the head because they're having an issue. Think about how expensive that problem is in every fashion, legally, humanly, is that a word, humanely, right? The family is distraught. The city is paying out gobs of, of money, right, in, in liability costs. The person's life and everything that they may have done is cut short. Everybody, people don't want to live in that town anymore because there's all this violence happening that happened in our town, right? And so now there's this stain on the community and you could have solved that by having information saying stage, this person needs to talk to their family members. They have a safe word. We know this, we see them all the time, but this department that showed up doesn't have access to that, so they didn't do it. People with disabilities, I obviously feel this one a bit personally. Housing and economic development's an interesting one. We actually have a CP program funded by that in California, right now. It turns out having people living on the street in the cold, in the rain, amid COVID and hepatitis A and all these other things, that causes downstream effects, right? So if you're able to, obviously drug intervention, I don't think I even need to talk about it anymore here. <laughs> but imagine being able to say, all of these things are benefited. How many of you have reached out to these organizations and said, we're here, we've always been here, right? And now we're gonna talk to you <laughs> in the language that you understand. Now, like I said, I'm gonna flash these on screen, but in the interest of uh, time, I'll, I'll pause there. I talked a little bit about this before. Just the idea that contained within the record of all the different things that you touch is all the crap that you see. And this stuff matters. And by the way, CP programs haven't even been properly studied yet uh, for the impact of that work on the practitioners. I see Tara in the room. Tara and I have talked about this a lot. Like what the impact of community paramedicine is on the clinicians. This is a disaster waiting to happen. You think, think post-traumatic stress is bad when you're watching limbs rip off. Watch what happens when Grandma Smith dies of the cancer she was going to die of anyway. But now you know her and you heard her story four times a week and she told you about her life and no one's studying that. It's starting. We're starting to talk about grief. We're starting to talk about death met, uh, notifications and so on and so forth. Yeah, but we put more time focusing on the artwork of it than talking about actually solving for this, preparing people for the fact that for most people, life is a terminal condition, right? And so to the degree that this is something we need to address and it exists in your data now. So if anyone ever talks to you about the idea that if you didn't write it, you didn't do it, you need to look at that person and say, you don't get it. This isn't about liability reduction, it's about letting me go home to my kids again because I had a shitty day and if all you want me to talk about is what's gonna get you paid, that's important because I gotta pay my bills. But contained within that quality information is the fact that you are gonna go see your four-year-old a couple hours after you fished one out the bottom of the pool. And that's real, right? Like I said, I feel that one because I did it. <laughs> Although he wasn't four. He was 13 and he was really big. Uh, so this is something I started writing about back in 2018, 2016. <laughs> and it's still not being widely discussed, <laughs> but we need to. And so that's sort of my public service announcement to you guys. There are tools for this right now. 
they are being used out there sporadically. They are not making their ways into the system. Instead, we're talking about making it okay for people to talk about what hurts. You shouldn't have to. The data systems that you're already using and rebelling against, and no one likes their EPCR system. I wish they did. No one likes their EPCR system. They are truly a lifeline if you listen to them. <laughs> and when you start to look at the quality that goes in that represents all of the different pieces <laughs> that you have done, and at each of those nodes, someone should be paying you for the work that you are doing because you are risking yourselves to do it and not even getting properly compensated for the work. That's all I got. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>